Amen. Well, we want to get into the Word of the Lord this morning. If you'll get your Bibles, I have a number of verses to read. And again, this is not my normal way of doing it, but it looks like in this series it's going to end up being become the norm. But I've got several passages to read here today by way of introduction, but good news is if we get them out of the way now, we'll only come back and talk about one or two of them um, specifically, but that's just a few more we can check off the list, praise God. Uh, we do have a good list of scriptures today. And uh, that's what the Truth Church is all about, by the way. It's all about the Word of God. I'm not here to give you um, the latest fads and fashions and tell you what is the current trend among modern Christianity. I'm not really interested in any of that. Just give me the Word. Give me the Word. When the Apostle Paul began to write to Timothy, and that's where we're going today, is in, in the the books of First and Second Timothy, but when he wrote to him about perilous times that would come, he also provided for him the solution to those perilous times, and the solution was preach the word. Don't, don't spend your efforts and energy trying to fight men or trying to fight things, just preach the word. Had someone just this week that sent me a little a link to a clip where someone was attacking uh, the message. Wanted to know if I'd considered responding. I hadn't even seen it to begin with. But second, I'm really not interested in fighting those battles. I'm just not. Now somebody pushes me in a corner, I'm not afraid to defend what I believe. But I'm not I'm just not looking for debates. That's just not me. That's not who I am and what I do. I'm not looking to debate anyone. I believe rather than debating His truth, God's called me to declare His truth. My obligation is not to make anyone accept it. My obligation is to declare it. Whether they accept it or not is between them and God. My responsibility is simply to tell you what thus saith the word of the Lord. And that's an obligation I take extremely seriously. I really do. First Timothy chapter 1, we will read a couple of verses here. And you're going to have to just follow along now because uh, we're going to be moving. I've got four different passages I want to read before we're done. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, and I want you to pay attention to a word that is used frequently throughout all of these verses. 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 and 19, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. And then chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 6, verse 20. I love the sound of Bible pages turning. 
I really do. 1 Timothy 6 and 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called. And then moving into 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And then one final verse of scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. 2 Timothy 2 and 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall also, or who shall be able to teach others also. And so if you caught that, in all of these verses of Scripture, there was one thing that Paul kept addressing. And it was the subject of commitment. That's what we want to talk about today. As I mentioned, I felt led of the Lord last year to begin this year um, going back to the basics. And uh, I was going to just start a separate class, a newcomer's class. But I really felt like this was material that it would be good for everybody to hear. And so, in this series that we're calling Living in Truth, this is actually the second lesson, though I spent four weeks on the first lesson, but but this is just the second lesson. Today we're going to deal with commitment. It's a basic principle, but it's a very important principle. And it's something that every, not just new convert, not just newcomer, But every child of God needs to hear and needs to apply in their own lives. All of us need a fresh baptism of commitment. We really do. Would you now put your Bibles down and let's lift our hands. Let's let's ask the Lord to speak today. And I need His touch, church. I... As Brother Hilton mentioned, I've been struggling with my throat, with my voice. It is obviously much better than it was a couple of days ago. Um, and I'm thankful for that, but it's not nearly where it needs to be. And, and uh, just I just need God's touch today. I really do. I need His touch physically. He knows all about it. But everything is in His hands. And I'm trusting Him that He's going to give me the grace today do what I've been called to do. So let's pray together right now. Would you do that? Let's everyone talk to the Lord. Jesus, thank you for your word, Lord. I'm asking you now to come and touch us, O Holy Ghost. I need your help. I need your strength. I need, O God, your grace. 
Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Would you just spend a moment and praise Him before you're seated here today? Let's give God some praise in this house. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you. You may be seated I want to start off this morning by just making a very simple statement, and that is the outcome of one's life really depends on two things. It depends on what goals, what goals he sets for his life or her life. That's number one. And then number two, the strength of the individual's commitments to that goal. That's what determines the outcome of our life. What are we trying to accomplish? And how committed are we to getting that done? Well, praise God. Now, this applies... It applies not just in a spiritual sense. It applies to everything in life. But it certainly applies to our walk with God. What do we want to accomplish in walking with God? What is our ultimate goal in walking with Him? Well, let's talk about the earthly goals that we ought to have. Not not just, not just the goal to get to heaven. And that does have to be a priority. We've got to make up our mind. That's where I'm headed. There is, there is no other option. Hell's not an option. And there is no such thing as purgatory. So there's no in-between. And I'm not going to hell. I refuse. I'm going to do whatever I've got to do. I am committed to that goal. Whatever I've got to do. And I mean that. There are times I've apologized to folks that I really didn't think I owed an apology. But I'd rather do that and get my spirit right. Because I want to be saved. But so many times that's the only focus that a saint has. I just want to get to heaven. I want to get to heaven. And that's good. But we really ought to have a focus down here. That if we can set this goal. Then we'll get to heaven. And that goal is to be like Jesus. That's what he's called us to do. To be like Him. And if we will spend our time committed to becoming more like Him, 
then we won't have to worry about heaven. We'll get there. I, I, look, and remember, this is just basics. But this is what I felt to do, was to go back to the basics. But I've seen so many people who, who live for God with this constant fear of, I'm afraid I'm going to lose out. I'm afraid I'm going to backslide. I'm afraid I'm going to give in. I'm afraid I'm going to give up. And they, they live with this battle raging in their minds. Well, let me tell you how to solve it. Make up your mind. I'm going to live every moment to be as much like Jesus as I can. Now, we're always going to fall short. We'll never be like him. Not going to happen. But we can sure try. And we should try. And if we will make up our mind. and In fact, I remember years ago hearing my first pastor tell us a story. He told a story about a little boy that, that went to his dad. And, and he was so worried about backsliding. And he was worried about being lost. And, and he, he said, Dad, I just, I just don't think that, that I can live for God for the rest of my life. And his dad said, well, let me ask you something. Do you, do you think you could do it for one year? He said, well, I don't know. I, I know that I got a lot of struggles. I got a lot of things going on. I, I, don't know if I, could, I don't know if I could do it for a year. Could you do it for a month? I said, that's still a long time, Dad. I, you think you could go one day? He said, I, you know, I, I, if I fought real hard, I'm, I might be able to, but I'm still afraid that before the day is out, I'm going to do something. His dad said, do you think you could live for God for one minute? He said, oh yeah, I could do it for one minute. He said, then just live it minute by minute. You don't have to focus on a lifetime if you'll focus on, I'm going to make it this minute. When temptation comes, how am I going to respond? I'm going to live for God this minute. Well, praise God. That is the sign of real commitment. Every minute that I live, I'm committed to doing what I've got to do. Well, praise God. Now, the only way that a person can really be committed, let me just tell you, you can't, I know from experience, that, that you can't be fully committed to a lot of things. You can't. You can't. The best way to be successful at a commitment is to make that your primary, if not only, focus. And when you have a singular focus, then you can be committed to that. But it's hard to be fully committed if you've got divided loyalties. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. 
Are you hearing me this morning? By the way, that's the best, the best Bible verse you'll find against polygamy. No man can serve two masters. That's a joke, ladies. That's a joke. But we have to have a singular focus. We have to have our minds made up. This is my goal. And everything else, it, it's, it's like I preached to you the other night. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And then Jesus said, all these things will be added. Everything else will fall in place if you'll have one singular focus. And that's being what Jesus wants you to be. The Apostle Paul addressed this, and this is not one of our text verses, but, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he addresses this concept and this idea with his son in the gospel, Timothy. And... And, and as I've pointed out, and I'll, I'll reiterate to you, but it, it's amazing to me, these two letters that were written by Paul to this young man who's up and coming, he is, he is Paul's disciple. He is his student. Paul is his mentor. Paul is writing knowing that his life is nearly over. In fact, he writes 2 Timothy Perhaps one of, if not the, last letter that Paul ever wrote. Remember him saying, I've fought a good fight, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. I'm now ready to be offered. Remember him saying, because he knew his time was up. He was about to be put to death. He knew that was coming. And so here is an older man writing to this young preacher. And he's trying to unburden his heart and trying to make sure that this young preacher follows in his footsteps. And if there's anything that Paul stresses in these letters, it's commitment. Timothy, you're going to have to be committed. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 says this, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Yeah, see, this is what he's saying. When you're, when you're out there on the battlefield, you can't be worried about your, your, your brokerage account. When you're out there on the battlefield, you can't be worrying about what's coming up for supper the next day. When you're out there on the battlefield, you, you can't be trying to negotiate with someone to make a trade of some possession. He said, if somebody is going to war, they don't get entangled in other things. If you do, you die. Right? You, you can't afford to get distracted. You've got to stay focused on the battle in which you are engaged. And, and listen, church, if you haven't come to realize it yet, we are engaged in a spiritual war. There's a war going on, a major war going on. People talk about culture wars. 
But let me tell you, the culture war that we're facing in America is simply the outcropping. It's the result. It's the fruit of the spiritual war that's been raging for a long time. We're just seeing now what this spiritual war has given birth to. Now, some of you young whippersnappers, you don't quite have the perspective yet that someone my age has. But I'm going to tell you, it's, it's amazing to me as I've, I've tried to do a little research and look into some things, 1960, which is the year I was born, seems to be a watershed for this country. Something happened in 1960 that the morals and mores of society began a downward spiral at that moment. And so in my 63 years, what I have witnessed is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. What we have seen happen in society defies description. When I was a child, yes, there was homosexuality. But it was a shame in society. It was a disgrace in society. And those who practiced it did so in private. In fact, many, many states had laws on the books that outlawed the practice. I, again, I'm not going to get into a debate, and I know this kind of stuff goes out over the internet, and people, you know, slice and dice it, and people say, well, they can't help how they're born. Well, you know what? Just to be blunt, I can't help how I'm born. I'm born a heterosexual, but I still have to control myself, and I still have to abide by biblical guidelines. So that argument doesn't mean anything to me. It means nothing. The Bible is clear. It's an abomination to God. And if I've got to go to prison for saying that, I'll go to prison. But I'm not going to stop saying it. That's not hatred. That's not hate speech. It's the scripture. It's the Bible. But we have gone, I don't want to get sidetracked, we have gone just in the time that I've been on this earth from it being something hidden, something shameful, something disgraceful till now they're bringing them into schools to put on drag shows for children four and five and six years old. How did we get here? How did our norms change so much? It's the result of a spiritual war. 
We're dealing with spirits in all of that. This is not about who somebody loves. It's a spirit. That's what it's about. And that spirit's got to be conquered. Every one of us have natural tendencies that are unscriptural. It's a result of being a human. But God expects us to practice self-control. Look, I've said it many times. You don't have to teach a child how to lie. They figure that out real quick. I know none of yours ever did. But. But most do. They figure out how to lie. And it's much easier for them to lie. They think. Than it is to fess up. And take whatever discipline is coming their way. That's a natural human tendency that unfortunately. Some adults never learn to get over. I had a pastor call me one day and he was so frustrated. He had just gotten off the phone with a man. And he said, I am so upset. He said, after I hung, off, hung up the phone, I realized that man lied to me. He totally changed his story from the time the conversation began to the time it ended. Complete turnaround. And he said, it didn't even dawn me until I hung up the phone. He said, now I'm so upset about this. He said, I'm just going to tell you this. I would rather deal with an adulterer than a liar. As long as the adulterer is willing to confess and admit, yeah, I, I did it. I was wrong. But somebody that's going to lie, you never pin them down. They've always got an answer. They've always got a response. And you can't deal with a liar. You just can't. I'm way off topic today. We're not going to get through. We're going to have four parts to Lesson two as well. It's supposed to be a 13-week series, and we spent four weeks on lesson one, so we're not going to make 13 weeks, I can tell you now. It may be 13 times four. It may be 52 weeks. That'll be a whole year. Um, but Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, No man that's involved in war starts worrying about other things because he'll die. You, you just can't do it. You can't have these other allegiances, other obligations pressing on you. You better be focused on the battle at hand. And, and, and people of God, listen to me. We need to wake up and get that kind of focus. Or we're going to lose this battle. Now the church overall won't lose. I dealt with that a few weeks ago. As a whole, the church will be victorious. But, I'm going to tell you, there are people in communist countries that are being victorious right now. So that doesn't necessarily mean the church in America. I'm not here to preach doom and gloom. But I'm just telling you, something's got to happen to us and we're going to have to get out of ourselves 
and realize there's a warfare going on. And we need to do whatever it takes to win this war. And there's, there's, there's a couple of things that come to mind that have to be done to win a war. Number one is defeat the enemy. But in order to do that, there's a couple of things that, that then are required, which means, number two, that you are focused on fighting the enemy. And number three, that you're focused on saving your fellow warriors. Because the more of our comrades that fall, the harder the battle becomes. That's why the Apostle Paul said, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We have an obligation to help our brother and our sister. If they get wounded, if they're shot down, we need to do what we can to, to get them the attention that they need so they can get back on the battlefield and fight again. Because all the enemy has to do to win is whittle down the army to a point that they just walk in and take over. We've got to have something rise up in us and that something is called commitment. I'm committed to the kingdom of God. I'm committed to doing whatever I've got to do to help the church of the living God win this spiritual battle. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be faithful. We'll talk about all these things. But, but listen, we've got to make up our mind to be committed to this cause. Now, as I said, Paul, Paul makes us a recurring theme throughout these letters. And and the text that we read, I'm not going to go back and read the verses because I've got too many other verses. So I would have just put them back in there to read them again. I'm not going to do that. If your Bible is still open to 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, then you can kind of look at it as I go. But I'm not going to read the whole verse. But I, I just want to tell you, in, in 1 Timothy 1.18, these are just strictly, I'm only pulling from the verses I chose for the text. There are other references as well. But I'm just choosing those few verses right now because we read them earlier. 1 Timothy 1.18, he wrote, This charge I commit to thee. I'm committing it to you. 1 Timothy 6 and 20, he said, Keep that which is committed to your trust. So, Timothy, I'm committing something to you. Now you keep it. You commit to it. I've been committed to it. I'm handing it to you. Now you commit to it. In 2 Timothy 1.12, he wrote that God is able to keep that which I commit to Him. I'm not doing this by myself. I've kept it. You know, we, we rejoice over the fact that Paul said, I have kept the faith. But when you really understand the letters here, Paul didn't keep it by himself. He kept it by the help of God. Paul was not a superhuman He was made up of the same flesh and blood we are. 
and you think about everything he went through. Stoned and left for dead. Shipwreck. Verbal abuse. Physical abuse. Repeated attempts on his life. Imprisonment more than once. For him to say, I've kept the faith. That's no small feat. Many people I know would have given up the faith long before that point. But listen, it's not because Paul had this great, you know, the, the, the ancient, not ancient, but, but the um, uh, Renaissance paintings of Paul and, and the icons that are made of Paul always have this halo around his head. There was no halo around Paul's head. Paul was not angelic. He was human. And he struggled just like we do. In fact, he had some kind of physical ailment that God refused to take away from him. Though he asked God fervently three times to do it. God said, Paul, my, my grace is sufficient. Not going to do it. It ain't happening. You're going to keep doing what you're doing in spite of your physical ailment. You're just going to keep doing it. And Paul said, I kept the faith. How? How did he keep it? This is key when he says, God keeps that which I commit to him. I've committed my faith to him. And now God's got to help me with this commitment. I can't do it on my own. I hope you're getting what I'm trying to tell you today. I, I can't do this on my own. I'm willing to make the commitment, but I need God's help to keep that commitment. I need His strength to remain faithful to that commitment. And saints, listen, when we fail, every time without, a without exception, 100% of the time when we fail, it's because we tried to do it in our own strength. Because God doesn't fail. So you look back over your life and say, well, I fell here. I, I failed here. I did. Yes. But those were times you didn't let God help you through this. You tried to do it yourself. So Paul says, 2 Timothy 1.12 God's able to keep that which I've committed unto him. And then in 2 Timothy 1.14, that's just two verses later, he says to Timothy, keep that which I've committed to you. So now, Timothy, it's your job to learn the same principle. You make the commitment and trust God to help you keep it. And furthermore, I, I said I wasn't going to go back and read these verses, but I, I probably am not going to get to this today, so... If, if you would, um, it's probably somewhere towards the end of the notes or else you can just get your Bible and get it, Brother Goff. But I do want to read 2 Timothy 2 and 2 again. We read it in our text. Um, 2 Timothy 2 and 2. I, I, want, I want to read that again now. As I said, I, I plan to get to it later, but I just I want to stress it now. 2 Timothy 2 and 2 says this. 
and the things that thou hast heard of me uh-huh. among many witnesses, uh-huh. the same commit the thou. The same commit thou to faithful, to men, faithful men who shall be able to teach, all, able to teach, teach others, others also. also. So Paul says, Timothy, I've fought this fight. I've had God help me keep my commitment. I'm now entrusting this commitment to you, and you need God's help to keep your commitment. But Timothy, it cannot end with you. You better find somebody else to hand this commitment to. Timothy, go find a Timothy. I'm telling you, my mortality is ever before my eyes. I recognize that I don't, and I said this not too long ago, I don't have that many productive years left, relatively. I just don't. I'm not trying to be morbid, but I just don't at this point, I don't have as many good years ahead of me as I have behind me. And I'm telling you, more than ever, I want to pour myself into some others. I want to give what I've had given to me. God's blessed me to sit at the feet of some of the greatest men in the apostolic movement. He really has. If I went down the list, some of the men that, that, that I... Not only that I spent time with, that I was one-on-one with, but, but men that at various occasions I was able to sit and let them teach me and impart things to me. and May not have had a, a one-on-one relationship, but just to be their student, even if for an hour. Some of the greatest men in Pentecost. Men that are now gone on to their grave. And they put things in me that we don't have a recording of. And I I understand this obligation that I have. I've got to find a Timothy. In fact, I don't want to just find one Timothy. I want to find as many Timothys as I possibly can. I want to pour this into as many people as I can. I want them to pick up this sense of commitment. In fact, in one regard, church, all of you are my Timothys. I'm trying to pour myself into you week after week to give you things that have been imparted to me so that I can stir up in your hearts this same commitment. That's my goal. See, if there is anything that is lacking in today's society, it's commitment. It really is. It is an absolutely forgotten quality. It's, it's forgotten. People don't understand. And, and I know that the more I say this, the more I sound like an old fogey. I know that. Because I remember being young and hearing older men say these kinds of things. Well, it was different in my day. And those kinds of statements just kind of went in one ear and out the other, unfortunately. But I understand whereof they spake now. Because things were a lot different for me. 
And, and I remember a day when it was a big thing for somebody to get a piece of land and build a house. And somebody owned that house. And that house becomes the family home. Today, get a better interest rate. Find a better deal. <coughs> Let's pack up and move. I like this house better. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But people were committed back then. Number one, to providing for their family, not just their immediate family, but for generations to come. We rarely think beyond the next generation. Let's be honest. Some of us think about our kids. I want to give my kids something. A few of us have reached the stage of grandparenthood and we're thinking, okay, well, I want to make sure my grandkids are taken care of. And that's all fine and good. But what about the great-grandkids and the great-great and the great-great-great? No, we may not be around to see them. But see, in, in bygone eras, people thought about that. And they wanted something that was tangible that they could hand along. Not just to their kids and their kids' kids, but well beyond. They understood commitment. If they got a job, they were thankful to have a place to work. And they didn't just change jobs because, oh, I was offered 50 cents an hour more over here. And again, I'm not preaching against that. I'm just telling you how little things have changed our perspective. And so it was nothing, it was nothing for people to, to spend 20, 30, 40 years on one job and retire from that job. That was not a big thing back then. It rarely happens these days. And a lot of factors for that. I understand that. Back then, people felt a sense of commitment to their employer. Sacrifice has become a stranger in today's society. They don't really understand what that even means. Compassion, I'm afraid, has become a byword rather than a heartfelt emotion. And commitment, well, that's simply an outdated idea whose time has come and gone. Got to look out for number one. And unfortunately, we have been raised to believe that, not we, but many in today's generation, have been raised to believe that number one is them. They're number one. So if they're not happy... Do what you got to do. I think Brother Goff made mention Sunday morning, um, you do you, boo, or something to that effect. Um, that, that's, that's the mindset. You know, you just be happy. Whatever it takes. Whatever. doesn't matter who you hurt along the way, just so you're happy. 
you, you, if you want to demand a new set of pronouns, you, just, you need to be able to be happy. I like what one man said, and i got to get off this, but I, I like what one man said. He said, you know, if you get to choose your own pronouns, I'm going to choose my own adjective. I'm brilliant. From now on, you recognize me as brilliant. I'm handsome. From now on, I'm going to use my own adjectives, all right? I'm going to be offended if you don't use the adjectives that I give you. That's how much sense all of this makes. Being committed is an outdated idea whose time, I'm afraid, many people think has come and gone. They don't understand commitment. They just want to be happy. Just want to be happy. That's all. Just happy. Just let me be happy. And so if the marriage only lasts a week, huh, we're not happy. No big deal. In fact, more and more people just don't even get married. Just let's live together for a while and see if it's going to work. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I will tell you, I will prophesy. Yea, I say unto thee. You move in with somebody wanting to see how well it will work. It won't be long, you'll move out. There's no commitment to that relationship. Now, some of the numbers that I found are, are way outdated, and I apologize in advance. I wish I had more recent numbers, but I couldn't seem to find them. Um even using chat GPT or whatever that thing's called. In fact, I think it's the worst resource out there. I really do. If you're not familiar with that, it's one of these artificial intelligence things, and believe me, it's artificial. It is so liberal. You ask a question, they're going to they're gonna give you an answer that goes as far left as it can possibly go. And so I was trying to use it to give me some numbers, give me some data. Oh, I'm sorry, but it, I, I don't have that information. Or um, it's not as bad as some make it out to be. When, when asking about things like teen pregnancy and divorce rates and, oh, it's, it, it's, it's not. It's, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I don't trust you. I'm tired of asking questions. I'll look it up myself. But I found one book that had it, but unfortunately the book was written a number of years ago. And so those statistics are really outdated, but they show a trend. This book said that since 1960, the number of unmarried pregnant teenagers has nearly doubled. The number of divorces has increased by almost 200%, which put marriage at an all-time low. Now, this is an interesting thing that he also put in this book. He said, 
and I'm quoting, a disturbing and telling sign of the declining condition of our nation is evident in an ongoing teacher survey. Over the years, teachers have been asked to identify the top problems in America's public schools. In 1940, teachers identified talking out of turn, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, cutting in line, dress code infractions, and littering. Those were their top problems in the classroom. I just watched a clip the other day of a young 200 and some odd pound, uh, pound man walk into the hall and knock a teacher unconscious while others are standing there watching. Teachers today are not worried about chewing gum and making noise. They're worried about staying alive. But I'm going to tell you, this stuff didn't happen by accident. And it didn't just change overnight. But it's because children have been raised in a home that does not understand commitment. First of all, the parents are not committed to each other. And secondly, the parents are not committed to the kids. Let the kids do what they want. And if anybody says anything, well, then I'm going to defend my kids because it's my kids. But I'm going to tell you, I've watched even parents in the church, even parents in the church, correct their kids only because they were embarrassed. Not because they really thought the child was wrong. I've seen it. I've dealt with it. I've had to deal with things as, as bad as immorality. Only to have a parent upset just because. And the statement made was, do you realize how that makes me look? This is not about how this makes you look. This is about a young person committing sin according to the scriptures. And, and that's why it's wrong. But parents have not instilled in their children this sense of commitment. They've not taught their children by example what commitment really is. Years ago, I was at a, a meeting in the city where I pastored. So that's how many years. I've been here 27 years. And uh, so it's been 30 years ago probably or more. I was at a meeting uh, in another city. I was pastoring there. And they were having problems with the young people. Um, they were out late at night. And they were doing all kinds of things. Destroying property and, and painting graffiti on walls and robberies and and this was a small town, small Texas town. And so they called an emergency meeting for all the concerned adults. Well, what are we as a city going to do about this? 
And so they got up and they made one presentation after another. What we need is um, an open gymnasium that stays open past midnight so these kids can come and play. Well, someone else, what we need are juvenile detention centers so we can lock them up. What we need, and I mean, they're offering all these things. And, and I'm making notes the whole time. I'm just, I'm telling you, something was stirred up in me, and I'm, I'm writing notes. And the next thing I know, I'll look up, and the mayor, they haven't resolved one thing. Not one thing. They just let everybody air their grievances and submit their ideas, and that's all. And I look up, and the mayor's got the gavel in his hand about to, to call the meeting to a close. I said, can I say something? And so I stepped to the, to the microphone, and I said, listen. I've heard all of these ideas that have been submitted. But what our young people need today is not a gymnasium. And it's not a detention center. You know what they need? They need parents to step up to the plate and be parents. They need parents that will instill in them a love for God and a sense of righteousness. Do you want to know why kids are so quick to turn to drugs? Because mama and daddy have been quick to turn to drugs. And this sermon went on for a while that night. And I said, parents, what we need is not a facility, whether to lock them up or to let them play. What we need is a revival. We need some parents to turn their hearts back to God and lead their children in that path by example. Well, my suggestion was treated like all the rest, so <clears throat> tabled and moved on. That's, that's what happened to that suggestion. But I still believe with all of my heart that that's the answer. We have generations now that not just their parents, but their grandparents. I know. Most of the leaders in society today the professors in many of the universities are the hippies of my day whose number one goal was to rebel against the government and to do their own thing. And they're the ones teaching others today. It was all about drugs. It was all about a sexual revolution. That's what was going on back then. And so now they've taken it off the streets and put it in the classroom. Church, we still need a revival. We still need people to get hungry enough to seek the face of God and to make some commitments to Him. You know, I've said this before. And, and I say again, it, it just amazed me how many people marveled at what was going on at Asbury College. And, oh, I want to go there. I want to go there. You want to drive six hours, seven hours, eight, depending on where you live in the country, to go see a phenomenon. Why don't you spend those six hours on your face seeking God where you are? Start a revival right here. Start a revival in your own life and in your own home. 
God's no respecter of persons. God doesn't just look across the country and say, oh, I think I'll do something here. God responds to hunger. And I'm not endorsing and I'm not condemning. I think I told this church that I believe with any of these things that happen, and I've seen many of them in my lifetime, but with any of them, the answer that we need to have is the answer Gamaliel gave in the book of Acts. When the apostles were called into question, his answer was, if it's of God and you fight it, you're fighting God. If it's not of God, it's going to die on its own. So leave it alone. I think that's the most wise answer that anybody could give to any of these situations. But I will tell you that God will do it for anybody that's hungry. We marvel that they stayed there for how many days this went on? For 24 hours a day for several days. Uh, this went on uninterrupted. We don't even want to be in church more than two hours without looking at our watch to get out. How are we going to see what they are supposedly seeing when we don't have that kind of commitment to seeing it? This is our obligation. This, this is what, if there's anything that I want to drive home in this lesson this morning, and I can't believe my time has slipped away and I'm, I'm only on page two of my notes. I haven't gotten very far at all, but it is what it is. Um, thank God my voice has cleared up some. I'm thankful for that. Um, but, but, but listen, church, if there's anything that I want to drive home, it is that we need a return to old-fashioned commitment. We're going to be committed to the cause of Christ. We are going to pursue the cause of Christ. We're going to uplift the cause of Christ. We're going to lay aside our agendas. We're going to lay aside our plans. We're, we're going to lay aside our dreams and our hopes. We want to promote God's kingdom first and foremost. And we're committed to that. And when we develop that kind of commitment, I'm telling you, God in return will come back and commit to us. He'll commit some things into our care. I'm ahead of myself here. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into that in time. But I, I'm, I'm telling you that we've lost it. In this country, we've lost this sense of commitment. I didn't even finish reading to you the things that I found in this book, um, let, me, let, me, let me just finish reading this a little bit and then I've got to try to bring this thing to a close somehow. But, but he goes on to write that, that according to one pollster, our society now places less value than before on what we owe others as a matter of moral obligation. In other words, we don't really feel like we've got a moral obligation to anybody besides ourselves. Less value on sacrifice as a moral good. Less value on social conformity, respectability, and observing the rules. And less value on correctness and restraint in matters of physical pleasure and sexuality. Higher value is now placed on things like self-expression, individualism, 
self-realization and personal choice. Now remember, this book was written many years ago. But those are still the things that people are focused on. Since Roe v. Wade was, became the law of the land, now thankfully they've overturned it for what it's worth. But from the time that it um, was passed, I don't know what the recent numbers are, but at that point, over 30 million babies had been put to death since 1973. 30 million. Of those, 200,000 per year were second and third trimester abortions. Do you understand what that means? That means the woman is anywhere from, from three months to nine months pregnant. 200,000 per year. And these numbers are old. Only 7% of all abortions fall into the category of the threatened life of the mother, the health of the child, or the victim of rape or incest. Only 7%, all of those combined. 93% of abortions are for personal convenience. Now, I, I don't want to get into the subject of abortion. Uh, I'm there, but just trying to show you what has happened in our country. This is me. I don't believe that we should punish the baby when it's rape and incest. The baby didn't do anything. How can we take that innocent life because of the evil ill intent of some adult. I don't agree with it. I don't believe the Bible agrees with it. And I could go on. I, I, I could read these statistics on and on and on and on. We have gone downhill in society. But I'm telling you, it all hinges on this one thing. A lack of commitment. If there's any commitment at all in society today, it is that people are committed to themselves. That's it. Now, I know this is not a popular message, and you're not going to hear this at any of the big pep rallies and, and um, self-worth conferences that go on today. Motivational speakers are not going to tell you the things that I've been saying today. But I want to tell you what it ought to do to the child of God. It ought to bring motivation to us. It ought to say, look, it's time that somebody stops the tide of all of this. It's time that somebody stands up to this onslaught against this, this, uh, this onslaught uh, against morality. God hasn't changed. And what God declared moral and immoral still remains moral and immoral today. God has not changed. But it's up to the church. It's up to us as his people to do something about it. 
Now, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about taking up arms and trying to overthrow the government. I'm talking about getting on our knees. I'm talking about trying to overthrow Satan's government. I'm talking about seeking the face of God until God makes some changes. But it's not going to happen with a now I lay me down to sleep prayer. It's not going to happen with with a Jesus bless my food prayer. And that's the only time we even think about him. Somebody's got to get stirred up enough to spend some time in prayer. Some real time getting a hold of God. Some real time seeking the face of God. But that's not going to happen unless we have Commitment. We've got to learn to be committed to the kingdom of God. Musicians come. I've got to close. My time is up and I'm about to start into another aspect of this lesson. So we'll carry this on into another week uh, or so. Praise God. Uh, I will be in Africa next week. And so please be praying for me uh, and for the conferences that we're going to be conducting there. I mentioned to the church, uh, we've got some at this, the, the latest report was some 250 pastors and pastor's wives that are going to be in that conference this coming week. And we want to be praying for them. We want to be praying that God will help us, Brother Stewart and myself. Uh, Brother Stewart's son is going to be doing some teaching as well. Uh, the three of us will be conducting these all-day seminars, physically taxing but spiritually very, very rewarding. As we train these men uh, and women to, to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, unfortunately, there is such a, such a movement in Africa to just totally abandon the scripture. And do whatever it takes. And, and it's, it's not just Africa. It's America as well. What I am thankful for is I've found hungry hearts in Africa that are willing to listen and to turn back to the pages of God's word. What I'm seeing in America is more and more people saying the Bible's not important. I mentioned this yesterday at our Bible study seminar, but but I actually watched a clip where a man was accusing people of worshiping the Bible. And I said, my response to that accusation is this. John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the word of God. So if you want to accuse me of worshiping the word, then I'll tell you, I definitely don't mind the accusation. I am worshiping Jesus. And the Bible is the printed picture of Jesus. I'm not worshiping the print. But I'm worshiping the one who spoke these words so they could be printed. The psalmist said, Thou hast magnified thy word even above all thy name. There's nothing higher than the word of God. And this is the problem, this is the problem that we're able to address over there is they get caught up even in a move of the Spirit 
where they believe the Spirit just tells them what to do and the Bible's no longer important. But I'm going to tell you, the Spirit of God's never going to contradict the Word of God. And so if there is a Spirit telling you to do something that's against the Scripture, that's not God's Spirit. I'd be careful listening to that spirit. God's spirit is always going to lead you according to his word. In fact, that's why he gave us his word. His word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. I want to tell you, 99.99% of what I need to know to live from day to day is just right here. What about the other little percent? Well, those are little incidental things that happen to me individually that I have to pray about and try to find God's leading, but they're never going to contradict this book. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell me necessarily if I should go out and buy another car, right? So there are a few things in life that I just have to pray about and let His Spirit lead me. But most things are going to be addressed by this book. And even then, there are principles in this book that ought to guide what I do. Principles like being a good steward. Well, hallelujah. I know we're not hooping and hollering this morning. Um, but I'm going to tell you, we need a fresh baptism of commitment. We need to make up our minds. I'm going to be committed to doing what God wants me to do. I'm going to be committed to God leading orchestrating, guiding, controlling my life. After all, He is my Lord and my God. He has the right to tell me what to do and how to live. He has that right. And I am committed to following after Him. Don't always succeed because I'm human but I am committed if I fall down I'm not giving up and I'm not turning around I'm committed to this path and that's all anybody has to do commit your ways to the Lord commit your ways to the Lord Psalm 37, 5, commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. If you'll make that commitment, God will take care of you. But we've got to make the first move. Draw nigh to God, and He'll draw nigh to you. God's not going to force us. He's not going to drag us kicking and, and screaming. God wants us to make the move. But if we'll make the move, He'll meet us. He'll strengthen us. He'll help us. If we will determine to be committed, God will help us keep that commitment. Let's stand this morning.